The year is 1975, and let's pour one out for an often forgotten teen film. The movie, Cooley High. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And this is the podcast where we are building our own list of the 100 best movies of all time. Uh, I cannot wait to talk about Cooley High today, but I also wanted to just give some props to you, Amy, because you played a very pivotal role in my life in the last week, which was you helped me name my brand new dog. <gasps> I did? You did indeed. Um <gasps> We adopted a dog from uh, a shelter. He's a great big 100-pound dog. Uh, He's an old English bulldog. And the kids really wanted to call him Meatball, but there's also uh, one of my kids felt like he also wanted to call him Sergeant, and you said, call him Sergeant Meatball. So he is now officially Sergeant Meatball, all thanks to you, Amy. Oh, my God. You know, Paul, this was going to be a surprise. Um, But today, I ordered your dog a Clippers jersey in dog size XL. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I cannot wait to put that Clippers jersey on. By the way, he'll let me put it on. He will let me do anything to him. He is such, he is a gentle, gentle giant. Oh, uh, well, I hope it arrives while your Clippers are still in the playoffs. Oh, wow. Wow, those are fighting words. <laughs> well, right now, Amy, we are up three to one and I hope for your sake, the Rockets just don't turn it on. And you know what, Amy, if we play our cards right, ultimately, maybe Sergeant Meatball might be one of the films on this list. I feel like Sergeant Meatball is a great film waiting to be made. I mean, a talking dog, Sergeant Meatball, put him in the army. I mean, this is, this is, uh, Hollywood. It's Do I have for to? For some reason, I feel like Goldie Hawn has to be in this movie. <laughs> um, by the way, uh, we like to keep this conversation going online and we've been using this new platform called Geneva and you can look in our show notes and you can find out how to get this app where we have a very exciting and, um, uh, I don't know, very active uh, conversation going on around all things unspooled. It's social media for people who don't like social media. You don't have to be on Facebook. You don't have to be on Instagram. It's just kind of a private chat only with people who are listeners to unspooled. So get on that. Uh, It's been uh, really fun to see that explode in the last couple of weeks. It has. It has. It has. I haven't had the guts to do a video chat on there yet, but we probably should. Well, we should definitely do that. Uh, We'll definitely get into that. And uh, just a reminder that we are looking for contestants for our brand new game show that's going to be on Stitcher Premium. It is uh, called Screen Test, and you can either put up a submission on Geneva or you can email us at unspooledpod at gmail.com. Amy, are you ready to talk about today's movie? Am I ever. All right. Well, let's unspool it. The year is 1975 and love, love will keep us together. The Vietnam War finally ends. Union leader Jimmy Hoffa disappears. Patty Hearst is arrested for armed robbery after being abducted and brainwashed into compliance. Notable firsts include The Pet Rock, Mood Rings, Jelly Belly Jelly Beans, Saturday Night Live, Disposable Razors, Wheel of Fortune, Microsoft, and Digital Cameras. That's right, Digital Cameras came out in 1975. This year's notable films are Nashville, Jaws, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, and today's subject, Cooley High. Let's take a listen to a clip. This is for the brothers who ain't here. Hey, man, you pouring out our wine. 
This is for the brothers who ain't here. <laughs> Forget them, man. They ain't here. They don't get none. Oh, yeah. Man, if there's a lot of brothers that's dead or in jail, and we just got to give them a little bit of respect. Understand? You pour your wine out, we'll drink all. Uh, respect. <laughs> the kid goes first. Good kid. Good, good. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Cooley High. It is the story of a group of high school friends growing up in Chicago in 1964, and it is directed by Michael Schultz. We spend the most time in the movie with Preach, played by Glenn Turman, and Cochise, played by Lawrence Hilton Jacobs. And over a classic Motown soundtrack that is all bangers, the soundtrack is bananas. The guys flirt badly with girls. They get into run-ins with neighborhood toughs, and in one memorable scene, they go hot-rotting. And they live in Cabrini-Green, which is where the screenwriter himself, Eric Monte, grew up. And you know, Cooley High comes out on June 25th, 1975. And when you take that and rewind it back, that is just two years after George Lucas's American Graffiti, which means that American Graffiti becomes the obvious and I would say kind of complicated comparison to Cooley High. Because, of course, when you're making a film about people who are young, black and living in Chicago, their youthful antics in this film have a lot more consequences than what we see in American Graffiti. Now, what was on the radio if you were driving to the movie theater on June 25th, 1975, you ask? You kind of hinted, uh, Paul. It is the Captain and Tennille, Love Will Keep Us Together. While that little ditty might seem a bit out of place for the weekend of Cooley High, it's actually an interesting example of what happens when pop culture does care about bringing together many different voices. Because not only was Love Love Will Keep Us Together written by Neil Sedaka originally for Diana Ross, even though Diana Ross never sang it, and then later that year the Captain's Neil made, made their own version, later this year the Captain's Neil released a second version called Por Amor Vivremos in Spanish, which also charted on the Billboard Top 100. Wait a second. I have a question about this. <laughs> yeah. Are is Captain and Tennille like a franchised band or is that Captain and Tennille singing in a different language? That is the Captain and Tennille singing in a different language, which I appreciate because when that song did so well in right. English and Spanish, the Captain and Tennille decided to not only allow that song to be remixed into a Spanglish version that was also played on on the radio everywhere, they decided to re-record their entire album of Love Will Keep Us wow. Together. In Spanish. So gracias, Captain and Tennille, for, uh, you know, pushing the boundaries of culture in 1975. I think that that is amazing. I love that. You know, Amy, you talked about how this movie is compared to American Graffiti. And I have to say that not knowing anything about this film and its history, that's immediately what I thought of when I was watching this movie. I was like, why isn't this movie on the AFI list? And why is... American Graffiti. It got me angry in the middle of the film. I was like, oh, this is such an easy swap because you have your George Lucas representation. And this movie is doing something from a voice that's incredibly different. You know, we talk a lot about representation and we have here, you know, um, a black writer and a black director talking about 
growing up in this part of Chicago that feels incredibly organic. And it's also breaking the molds of, I think, what's going on at the time in black cinema, right? In black cinema at this point, I think that you often saw black characters in very um, stereotypical roles, you know, and there was a lot of guns and violence and drugs. And this movie was so playful and fun and it's a hangout movie and that's really what made me do the comparison to American Graffiti it made me even think about Superbad in a way like this is just a hangout movie we're with these people for you know it feels like a short period of time but I guess it's maybe a like a week I guess at the end of the movie he's like sick for a week um I just really fell in love with these characters and the movie feels so raw and genuine and um very independent to me Yeah, it's really this light breath of fresh air. You know, it it has so much charm. You just want to hang out with these dudes a lot. Well, okay, I want to hang out with them a little bit less because I'm a girl and they're not super nice to girls. But I like being around them and watching them pal around. And And it's interesting, you know, when it comes out in culture in 1975. Remember last week when we were talking about Rebel Without a Cause and how Rebel Without a Cause kickstarts this whole rise in teen movies and drive in movies and this kind of ragged culture. There's actually an interesting connection between Cooley High and Rebel Without a Cause because here's what happens in like the two decades that separate these two movies. So the year after Rebel Without a Cause, this new production company called American International uh, Pictures starts and they start by releasing movies that are for teens, that are for like this Rebel Without a Cause audience. They do the very first Fast and Furious. You know, that's one of their jams. And then after that, they do like Rock All Night, Teenage Caveman, I Was a Teenage Werewolf. And they do all these kind of schlocky, fun B-pictures. And by the 70s, it's American International Pictures, the same company that is one of the major voices making black exploitation cinema. You know, they do black, they do Blackula, they do Foxy Brown, they do Coffee, they do Black Caesar. And then they finally get this script um, that the producer, Steve Kantz, want, really wants to do for Cooley High. And it sets up this dynamic that you really see in this film where you have, you know, the founder of American International Pictures, this guy named Samuel Z. Arkoff. You know, he has this Arkoff formula, you know, that his films are like geared towards the 19-year-old boy. He sees that Cooley High is a movie that he can make into a really big hit, which he does. This movie is made for like nothing and it makes $13 million at the box office. But you can also tell that there's a little bit of a war in Cooley High between like the sweet story that it wants to be and then being like, well, we need a, a little bit of boobs and we need a little bit more sex in here. Like make it a little bit more black exploitation. There's there was kind of a struggle, I think, behind the scenes for the soul of this movie. And I think it comes out mostly intact as the sweet film it wanted to. But that does mean when critics saw it, they were like, why, why isn't this more black exploitation or why isn't it too black exploitation? It, it couldn't quite be seen without the label of its distributor sort of shaming expectations. That's really interesting because I know that this movie really had to kind of bend over backwards to get made. For example, shooting in Chicago at this time was not something that was done. Chicago was not a movie friendly place. And so to convince the mayor to shoot in Chicago, they had to pull all these strings so much so that they wrote dummy scenes for the film to get approved by the mayor's office. So they would let them shoot in Chicago. Like they, the mayor thought that this movie would be bad for Chicago. And there's scenes where they show the police being like bumbling buffoons and like, we can't have that. So there were dummy pages going around as well. So they were really having to answer to a lot of different people (laughs) to get this movie done. Wow, they wrote fake copaganda to get it greenlit by Chicago. By the way, I've done this on my shows as well. Whenever you have to shoot in a location, you show fake pages because then it feels like 
you can just get in there and then you can do whatever you want on the day. But it's it's one of the most fun things to do is write fake pages for location approval. And you're uh, just gambling that they're never going to come see it. That like well, they're gambling that Mayor Daily was never going to come see it. <laughs> once you shot it, it's done. It's in the can. You just need to get the approval to go in there. Um, you know, it's it's a handshake agreement. Yeah. Um, I can imagine you singing like a boys to men song to the mayor, like, "Hey, baby, I'm so sorry I had to break your heart like this, but uh, <laughs> we had to scrap those scenes, baby. Forgive me, I'm on my knees. Here's the movie. Go see it." But, you know, I think the reason why this movie stays intact is because of the writer, Eric Monty. So Eric Monty created Good Times and Eric Monty is pretty much the um, is preach. I mean, he is basing that on himself. And we talked a lot about how the best of these high school movies are based in true life. And this movie has a lot of those parallels, which we'll get into. But he created Good Times and really wanted to put social issues on the forefront. And the network really wanted to put dynamite on the forefront, you know, and that was Jimmy J.J. Walker. He was like a breakout character from the show. And as the show got further and further away from what they were originally doing, um, Eric was getting more and more upset. He was like, I, this is not the show I want. You know, John Amos leaves that show because he felt like it became a goofy, you know, type of show. And, and Eric Monty leaves this film. So you have somebody who was working already in Hollywood. You know, he was, you know, working in a system and realizing like what they can and cannot say. And this film, I think, is very much like what most independent uh, writers and directors do. Like, I'm finally going to be able to make my story and I'll make the concessions on the budget to do the story that I want to tell. And they cast this movie with all these amazing locals. It, it just feels like this was a story that needed to get out. And maybe because of the Hollywood experience that Eric Monty had, he was able to really channel what he wanted the story to be. So I think that kind of backbone is the reason why the film stays intact, to your point. Yeah, you can see that. I mean, Eric Monte himself, he's such an he's such a really interesting character. Like he really lived that preach life. Like he hitchhiked his way to Los Angeles when he left Chicago to try to make it as a writer. And then when he gets here, he starts taking theater classes at LACC, LA City College, right around the corner. And that is where he meets um, Mike Evans, who wound up being an actor who um, had a bit part in All in the Family. And Mike Evans is like, you're a funny guy. You should be writing. And he took one of his scripts. He gave it to Norman Lear and Norman Lear gave him this, you know, boost, like let him write a couple episodes, hired him to do that. And then they've had falling outs that have been all over the place. There's been lawsuits. Um, right, because at, he wasn't at, credited, right? That was a part of the lawsuit. Like the, he he basically helped create the Jeffersons, but was never given the credit for creating the Jeffersons. Like that seems to be one of the things I read. And again, we're not saying that that is the correct way it happened, but that seems to be the the rub of that relationship. Yeah, that is definitely his interpretation of what happened and that then they took like the idea of Cooley High and use it to make the show what's happening and that he didn't get paid for any of this. By the way, that to me was crazy because again, I was watching this and watching the, the lead characters run around in that first 15 minutes. It's like, this feels like what's happening because what's <laughs> happening, the uh, the opening of that show, which I loved, it's such a great show. Uh, they're just ru- like they're running after like uh, a truck and they're jumping on the back of the truck and uh, a rerun can't get on the truck because he's too large to, you know, keep up with the truck. But it's, you know, Raj and rerun and Dwayne Wayne. And I it just reminded me so much of it. And I was like, oh, I wonder what came first. And then I saw that they actually tried to make a Cooley High pilot. It tested poorly and they just basically stole the idea and. Because even the way the characters are dressed, like Raj looks like Cochise, you know, um, is, you know, it's just kind of put in this blender and they make what's happening, which becomes incredibly successful. And I think what's happening and the reason why it stayed on the air for such a long time is because it did also probably 
fall on that same uh, side of good times where it's just it's a little bit lighter and easier. You know, Shirley, uh, who was the waitress at the at the like the restaurant that I used to go to, like was on like bowling for dollars. But D from Cooley High is in. I know too much about what's happening. <laughs> D from Cooley High is in, uh, you know, that same character. They really just carbon copied Cooley High. I mean, I was kind of blown away by it. Yeah. And Eric Monte's argument is that he didn't get a piece of that. So he winds up suing that. CBS and they settle with him for a million dollars. And then Eric Monte says that he's pretty much blacklisted by Hollywood. After that point, when he sues them in the 70s, he can't get any of his work done. He gets a couple scripts here and there, but that's about it. And then he gets rediscovered, actually, by a writer for the LA Times is living in a homeless shelter here in LA in wow. uh, 2005, 2006. And and yeah, he had a he had he's had a really hard and dramatic uh, arc. And so wow. you watch Cooley High and you it's nice to see this movie and get to see it as the full expression of what he really wanted to do. Like, at least he got to do what he really wanted to do right here. This movie is so influential. We can get into that in a little bit. But I think the team that he put together or that was put together by this film studio was actually really smart for a film studio that, you know, surrounds themselves in exploitation or that genre films, you know, they went out and reached out to uh, this director, uh, Michael Schultz. And Michael Schultz is coming off of, uh, you know, getting people Tony nominations for getting you know, Al Pacino the, a Tony nomination. Yeah, Al Pacino. It's crazy. And, you know, he is, uh, you know, he's doing all these kind of interesting films. But, you know, after Cooley High, he's doing Car Wash the year later, Which Way is Up with Richard Pryor, both actually with Richard Pryor. And he actually, uh, directed Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the movie, which is so bizarre. But at that point, it was the largest budget ever entrusted to a black director to that date. Um, yeah, and, and you you actually can't leave out two films that are very near and dear to my heart that he yeah. also made. Uh, the Last Dragon and Disorderlies. I, I grew up watching gonna, yes. Disorderlies, Disorderlies all the time. And The Last Dragon is just a mind blower. Uh, Crush so Groove. Good. I mean, Michael Schwartz, he's amazing. Like he, I, I mean, think, is one of those like greatest directors that hasn't gotten enough credit for his career. Denzel Washington's first film, Carbon Copy, that was him as well. Like he really, I think he elevated this film. But I think what he did that was so interesting was casting real people the film has a slight like uh harmony corinne vibe to it and here's what what i mean by that like you can tell that there are like these real moments of real people it doesn't feel like people are overly in makeup there there are these like moments that feel really alive and and the moment that i want to point to that we can't play because it's visual is when they're sneaking out of class in the beginning of the film and there are two girls that are watching the bulletin board and one of our characters like pinches their butts like gooses them on the way out and their reactions are so genuine that i'm like this is that director must have told them do this because one girl looks straight into the camera like wait what what is going on like and they both are shocked and i feel like the movie has a little bit of that energy this running gun we're having fun we're getting what we can get we're letting people be themselves um, we're casting people who've never acted before and it, and it makes the film feel more alive. And just to add to that point, the other film that I really compared it to, and I don't know if anyone's ever said this is easy rider. This felt to me very much like easy rider. Here are people hanging out. We're talking about what the world is, what world are we going into, what we want to be, what we don't want to be and how, you know, that movie very similarly, you know, uh, has kind of a a tragic end after a film where it doesn't 
it's not leading you down that path, right? And I think that's kind of the beauty of this movie is you're having so much fun with these characters that when it does turn in that last five minutes, and it's really not even until like the last minute or two that you realize that it is going to go dark. Um, it really, I think it pulls you that much deeper in because it doesn't feel like that's hanging over the film the entire time. Yeah, I mean, I want to talk about those girls and kind of the world he creates because what I appreciate about this film is even though it is very much centered on Preach and Cochise, who were played by like real New York trained serious actors, um, you see the same extras so much in all of those scenes, including oh, yeah. those two girls. You see them at parties, you see them at the I diner, you see them at school. That by the time you're an hour into the film, you feel deeply like you know this world. You you look around and you're like, oh, there's our friend. It feels like walking into a party and you recognize everybody by that point because everybody has a unique presence, a unique face. Even if they don't have that many lines, you you feel like connected to them. It is interesting in all the films that we've done, this is truly the only film that made me feel so far like I was in an actual high school. Because the truth is, you know, I came, I went to a bigger high school but you've recognized faces. And I feel like a lot of the times in, you know, Mean Girls and the other films we've done, like they're, the faces all kind of blur. And here you really feel a part of this group in this community. And that may have been a budget reason, but I think it actually, it makes the film land harder. So when they're at that party and there's damage at that party and people can come in for one line, the one lines hit so much better because we've already seen them. They don't feel like they're a new character. It's the ensemble here is phenomenal. Yeah, he gives you a time to let all the characters creep up on you. Like, there's mm-hmm. never that moment where, you know, because she's like, well, so-and-so. You know how so-and-so is. Like, they don't talk about everybody as though they're characters. They just sort of gradually start to fade in and you get used to their faces. And you, you, I don't know, maybe it's also that, you know, they seem to look more like kids than in something like yeah. Mean Girls where everybody's very made up. You know, there's a Hollywood well, yeah. look to Mean Girls. That You're seeing I feel acne like... in this movie. Like, yeah. acne is on full display and I don't <laughs> mind it. Like, I... You kind of are taken well, aback by it because you're like full display and I don't mind it. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's rare because I think we're so used to seeing the idealized version of how people should look and act. And this film, very much like Stand and Deliver, paints a very unique picture. Not every like people are not stereotypes. They are actual people like they, everyone has a look that is their own because they're not. They're not traditional Hollywood actors. They're not just going out on a million casting calls, you know, or a lot of the supporting players aren't. I mean, I think in a way that's kind of what connects this film, not only with Stand and Deliver, but with 400 Blows, that people Mm -hmm. look very natural in it. Yeah. You know, when the kids were running down the Chicago streets at the beginning of the film, you know, running to the zoo, it had that energy of 400 Blows. Like, here we are. We have we're We're using the city. We're using our legs. We're taking up space. We're so excited to be young and to be, you know, alive at this moment. Yeah, I mean, two of the people in this film who were just cast from the neighborhood, they were like literally cast from the neighborhood. Sherman Smith and Norman Gibson, they play Stone and Robert, the tougher guys. The story they tell is that they're playing basketball outside and a white limousine pulls up and it's like, hey, do you guys want to be in a movie? And what had happened was the casting director had asked the local police, where can I find some authentic looking tough people to put in my movie? And they're like, oh, go to that court. That's where these guys hang out. So they did that, and that is how they cast him in the film. And uh, there's sort of a bit of a, a tragic roundabout story to this, which is, you know, the casting director has talked about this before in the past. She's talked about how she feels a little bit responsible for what happened next, which is, you know, a lot of the younger people in the cast were like, this is it. This is going to be our breakout star. 
And it didn't quite happen. You know, one of the people who's amazing to read on the history of Cooley High is actually Gene Siskel, because Gene Siskel was a big champion of this film. You know, he visited the set. Um, uh-huh. He went to the premiere. He wrote a really angry letter about going to the premiere, where when he went to the premiere of Cooley High, they didn't change the marquee of the movie theater. You know, it was a local oh, premiere. Wow, so all yeah. of the people who worked on the film, all of the young actors who were on the film showed up and there wasn't a red carpet and the marquee on the theater said bug. And Gene Siskel used his clout to get really angry about this. And he was like, why didn't you change it? And the theater said that American International Pictures didn't think it was worth spending the $600 to put up the name of Cooley High and get a wow. red carpet for their actors. And Gene was furious and he really made a stink about it. And he was like, these people deserved better from that. Like you, they deserved this. And I appreciate him really sticking up for that cast. But anyways, he then profiled a lot of the cast members individually. And a lot of them were like, we're so excited. We're going to go in and like, and build our career. And it didn't happen for some of them. Some of them it did. And it was amazing. Like Jackie Taylor, who's in the film, you know, she winds up launching a theater company in Chicago for black actors. It's called like the black theater, the black theater ensemble. Um, But as for Sherman Smith and for Norman Gibson, it didn't really work out quite so well. And you might remember their epilogue here in the film is that both those um, guys, Stone and Robert, are shot a couple of years later in a gas station robbery. And that's a little bit of what kind of happened here, which is um, Norman Gibson felt really disillusioned a few years after this film came out. You know, it he didn't really get a big career in both he and um, Sherman Smith backslid a little bit into doing criminal stuff. And one day Norman takes a shot at a woman and he misses. He doesn't kill her, but he fires a couple of shots at a woman. And um, a month later, her boyfriend comes back and murders him. And oh, uh, wow. he dies. And then shortly after that, you know, Stone himself served eight years in prison for armed robbery. And he's now doing a lot better. And he does a lot of interviews about the film, which is great. But uh, the casting director has said she kind of wishes she had thought more about the ethics of building up people's hopes and that she feels a little bit responsible or wrestles with that. And and that is tough, you know, that when you bring the vitality into a film, it can be really hard. You know, it can be really hard for everybody involved. I mean, I think it's hard for anyone to achieve a tremendous amount of success at a young age and expect it to continue, especially, um, you know, I think it's a double, it's a doubly hard thing to traverse because not only was he a young actor, which I think is hard to kind of break out of that, but he was a young and black actor, you know, which I think is even a smaller hole, you know? So it is, um, it's interesting. Yeah. It's, you know, there's a lot of stories like this across the board. I think when you, when you get that kind of success and, uh, yeah, always a little bit of uh, sadness attached to it. Did you think this movie was also incredibly sexual without being pervy. Like, and I, I say that in a way of like, I think high school movies, you know, either are very um, chaste about sex, like, oh, I've never had sex or I'm nervous about sex, or it's like, I'm in porkies and I need to see up girl shorts. You know, it's like this movie, I think, played into like a realistic world of, I don't know, sexual activity. Like, I, I feel like they're, they definitely want to be like hooking up with each other. And when they do shoot that one sex scene, it's kind of really beautifully done and tastefully done. And uh, it just, I don't know. I also felt like it captured like 
sex without necessarily commenting on it. Like besides the fact that people just wanted to hook up. I mean, that's fine. But it was something different about it. I couldn't quite oh, put no, my that's finger interesting. on it. There wasn't really a judgment. I mean, I, no. I, I, of course, like my immediate flag always goes up in scenes like where they're trying to pressure the two girls in the, in the hallway yes. to sleep with mm-hmm. them. I, you know, I get a little bit like, leave them alone. They're not right. feeling it. But it wasn't like in that Porky's way. Like if these girls did that, these girls are, you know, skanky and deserve it, which I feel like happens in a lot of the yeah. movies that come after this. And it, it makes me incredibly uncomfortable. And it wasn't like, let's check them out. Like what's happening over here? It, it, you're right. The camera wasn't pervy. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Yeah, it, yeah. I also think it didn't. It didn't even slam the two sex workers. Like when they have that really funny scene where they're kind of pretending to be cops. To I mean, I, I mean, I don't even know what you would call it. I mean, they're basically scamming two sex workers here in the scene. But even that scene, nothing seems incredibly stereotypical. Nothing seems like over the top. I don't know. There was something about the way that sex was handled throughout this movie that felt refreshing to me. I mean, I kind of hated that scene. You hated the scene. <laughs> I did. Tell me. I, I mean, did. I understand why it's not a great yeah. scene, but yeah. tell me. Yeah. I guess, you know, and I want to be very, yeah, I'm not trying to say that because it shows a problematic thing that mm. it is therefore problematic. And I hate the film it, with no trying to like understand any, any sense of nuance right. to it, but they're, terrifying these two yeah, let's play a little bit of it yeah i didn't find it okay you bitches are under arrest for prostitution mars go get a squad car check jackson hey baby this is my best day and y'all gonna make us lose a whole lot of money oh baby you make my heart bleed for you look man come here let me talk to you here Look, man, I just got out yesterday. See, I, give me a break here. Man, I, I ain't made up yet. Oh, come on now. What do you say? Here, give me a break. Well, uh... Here. We take bribes. Nigga, how much you want? How about $10? $20. No, he said $10. $10. Here. Shit. Wait a minute. The Lone Ranger... scaring these women into thinking they can't pay their rent because they're trying to take all of their money. And my heart goes out to those women, honestly. And yes, I appreciate that it's he's not like they deserve it because look at the way their tits are. But right. like when they're they're so it's freaked not- out about losing their money, I'm furious at Cochise. And I I I, I think it's okay for the I, actually I don't know if the movie thinks it's okay for me to be mad at Cochise. Yeah, I, I get the sense that a lot of the things that happen in the script from what you know Steve Krantz, the producer, said is that he was basically hanging out a lot with Eric Monte. They were working on Fritz the Cat and Norman Lear had tipped Eric Monte to be like a joke puncher up writer for Fritz the Cat. So they're like working on all these jokes behind the scenes. And Steve Krantz, who grew up poor and Jewish in New York, was trading stories with Eric about growing up poor and black in Chicago. And I think this was just one of the stories he told him. He said just started to tape record all of Eric's stories. Then when he had 22 hours of stories of Eric from when he was a kid, he was like, we're going to shape these into a screenplay. And this has the feel of... No, this just happened. It actually did just yes. happen. And Eric's like, ha ha, yes. this one time. Right. And I think that that's the youthful indiscretion of childhood, right? Like if you go back and like, oh, I wouldn't do that now as an adult. And I think because they're kids, they are literally, they're children. They're making a, yes, they're making a mistake. And I think if you look at it and what they're doing, it is awful. I'm not defending it at all. But 
there is something fun about that scene or it's portrayed as fun. But the reality of it, I agree with you, yeah. is obviously problematic. I mean, they're I mean, shaking I'm down. I'm always these, here to defend yeah. the right of a character to do something awful. Like, I feel like right. yeah, we characters need to do more but they're awful not, things they're in not, movies. They're but, not yeah. positioning it as awful. I mean, they really yeah. are just doing I think what's why I thought it was funny was because. They weren't using violence. They weren't using intimidate. I mean, they were intimidating. I mean, it's a tricky, it's a tough line to walk, but they want to go see a movie like, and they want to get like $10 to go see a movie. I mean, you're right. You're right. And you're right. I also feel like I found it to be kind of carefree the same way that when they were stealing peanuts from the hot dog stand, like there's, there's an energy to this movie of, oh yeah, you do dumb shit when you're a kid and you might do the wrong dumb shit and you might get caught because of it. And that's really what the movie shows. Well, either way, I feel like we can agree that they are not obeying the Cooley code that we hear at the beginning of this movie. They are. We heard that Cooley code like minute five and they're like, yeah. we're not going to do that. The Cooley High School Code. Cooley students are conscious of developing good character. We are good sports. We are good losers as well as good winners. We do have respect for our school and will do nothing that will reflect on Cooley's good name. At social functions, we do follow all rules and no schools in charge. We honor and respect our parents, teachers, and others who are responsible for our guidance. We are honest. Wake up, wake up. We hand in our homework and classwork on time. Are you with me? Yes. Cooley students disrespect property. We do not destroy facilities or school grounds. We do not enter public transportation illegally. Cooley students are aware of personal appearance. We wear The Cooley High School feels very much like the school in 400 Blows. Like that scene felt like they spoke to each other. But I will say, just going back to this idea of youthful indiscretion, right? What do you do when you're a kid that is messed up and wrong? And I'll tell you, like right now, like, did I steal my friend's parents' car and we went joyriding without licenses? Absolutely. You did? You know, oh, yeah, we would go to White Castle and then drive the car back. I mean, I did it so many times. Like, we would steal our parents' cars. I never stole my parents' cars. But, like, oh, I would do that. I would lie. I mean, I did so many dumb things. Like, things that if my children did it, I would be out of my mind. They will do but it, I, Paul. I know, but... And they're going to the, do it in the future, where you don't even know what technology cars, they're going to do it lying. with. Lying. <laughs> um, but, but the idea being, like, I made these mistakes. And if you were to show that, like, yes, I stole a car. I mean, I essentially stole a car. Like, it was not my car. We went in that car. We did not have permission. We did not have licenses. We did something illegal. And I think, you know, right now, movies often go like, you're really, really bad and you're doing fucking meth, you know, when you're a kid. And it's like, oh, they're so, they're out of it. They're so fucked up. Or it's like, oh, it's tomfoolery. We had a, a cream pie fight, you know, like that kind of thing. And I feel like this movie walks the middle line, which is, yeah, I, I stole from stores when I was a kid. I'm, these are not things I'm proud of. Like, I stole, like, a Playboy magazine from a store because I was like, oh, I got to see this, you know, whatever it was. And, you know, I... You no, it's would, true. When I was in college, 
we shoplifted a little bit because we wanted to make fancy things from fancy cookbooks and we didn't have any money. So in Oklahoma, we shoplifted marzipan and I felt guilty about it oh, forever. Oh, wow. By the way, that is that is the best uh, Amy detail I've ever heard. Marzipan <laughs> theft. Um, to but, make that little, you know, Martha Stewart used to have this cake where it was a vegetable patch and she yeah. rolled all this marzipan to look like tomatoes and carrots and stuff. And <laughs> we wanted to make that cake. And I think this is like the tricky part of the film. They're just having fun. They're just doing their things. They're not really having consequences. They are kids. Like they're in, yes, they're seniors in high school, but they're just, they're not like criminals. They're not doing anything bad. They're just kind of pushing the boundaries. And when they did get or when they do get busted for their joyriding, um, you know, they are let off by their teacher. Now, this kind of creates the whole downfall of the film in, in the last act. There is a way to be having fun and being against the law without being a criminal. And like, yes, everything that I did was a criminal act, 100%. But I also believe it's part of like that coming of age. And I think that that's what this movie interestingly captures. I haven't really seen without it being like, oh, you were forced into this or you are a bad kid. They're not bad kids. They're just kind of, you know, trying to have fun and and they don't have money. So they're stealing peanuts. You know, I don't know. It's I understand why it's problematic, but I also think it's it's truthful. You know, let's keep talking about Eric Monte for a second, because I think I feel like I know him having seen this movie. You know, doesn't this feel like one of those movies where like I get you kind of I feel like I want to talk about 400 Blows the whole time in this, because to me, I feel like that's really the close parallel here. He tells the story about when he was a kid, you know, he was five years old and he was obsessed with cowboys. Like he was really obsessed with Gene Autry and the Lone Ranger. And he would run around in his neighborhood on a little broomstick horse. Did you have one of those? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He had one of those. And he said, um, as he was running around, this older white man comes up to him and he's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm the Lone Ranger. And the guy said, you can't be the Lone Ranger. The Lone Ranger is white. And Eric Monte, when he tells the story, says, like, that is the moment when I said, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to write my own heroes and I'm going to write my own characters. And it like really galvanized him into being a writer. And I was thinking about him and I was thinking about Truffaut when you have that scene in this movie where Preach, the character who's closest to him, reveals himself to love poetry. It made me think of that scene. I want to play that. He's romancing the girl, Brenda, that he has a giant crush on. And they realize they have this one connection, which is they love poetry. Yeah, I like sonnets from the Portuguese. Uh, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. Yeah, this is dynamite. You like poetry? Oh, yeah, this is pretty. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, girl. But if you really like love poetry, you ought to check out a dude called Walter Benton. <laughs> he got this poem called uh, Where I Pick Malian or God. I would make you exactly as you are in every dimension. From your warm hair to your intimate toes, would you be holy in your own image? I would change nothing, add, or take away. Yeah, that's dynamite. <laughs> and that poem fits you too, you know? Yeah, it really fits you. Yeah, I'm gonna give you that. As soon as I steal a copy. He's so genuine in his love of literature. And this is a guy who we keep being told throughout the school, the whole film, doesn't care about school, has lousy grades, even though he's incredibly smart. And you again get that sense of like, if you could just water this guy, water the the seed in him that he really loves, this guy can do anything. Yeah, I think that, again, these kind of portrayals of real characters and, you know, thinking about 400 Blows, which I also thought about watching this, you know, it is there is a joy in watching 
children run around a city, right? The city is, you know, I remember sneaking into the city when I was a kid and going to 42nd Street and getting caught up in all kind of craziness. Like there's a this idea of you're just old enough to be there without a parent and and what do you do? And and I just love that they're always running and having fun. And there's a this element of running and being free. You know, uh, Monte even said, like, I wanted to make this movie to dispel the myths about growing up in the projects. You know, I grew up in the Cabrini Green housing project and I had one of the best times of my life there, the most fun you can have while inhaling and exhaling. And I feel like that's what this movie is. It is constantly, you know, showing people for who they are, very unique, very organic, not stereotypical characters, not stereotypical storylines. And it is so based in in the lives I think we have. And we talk a lot about like, Oh, I connect with this character. I see this character. But here, there's a they capture childhood in a really interesting way. Like your friends weren't just like, you know, I'm the jock. I'm the fat one. I'm the, you know, I'm the wise guy. I'm the shy one. Like it's not all John. Uh, that's movies, a bad you know? Vietnam film. <laughs> I know, but it's like, but that's the way I think American uh, cinema for teens are often like, here it is. Here are the straight cuts down the middle. And when it's so refreshing, I think we've avoided that for the most part in this they are different and they are real three-dimensional characters. No one here is like, you know, just because uh, Cochise gets a basketball scholarship, he doesn't just talk about basketball, care about basketball. It's, it's just a part of his larger story. Yeah, you know, we've been saying like the voice of Eric Monte, the voice of Eric Monte. Let's actually hear the voice. This is a little bit of a choppy uh, sound um, interview, but it's from 2006 when he was kind of being rediscovered. Um, and this is him explaining, you know, the story that he really felt like he wanted to tell. And the story he starts is that, you know, Steve Krantz, the producer, when they were working on uh, Fritz the Cat, Steve um, was like, here, come see this film. This film really tells the black experience. And Eric was like, no, I'm going to be the person who has to do this. Talking about how Kuli High came to be made, um, the idea behind it. And you said that um, Steve Krantz took you to see the education of Sonny Carson. He wanted to tell me that that was real black. Uh-huh. And I was into, no, it's not. And he said, yes, it is. And I said, no, it's not. He said, yes, it is. And I said, how many black neighborhoods have you been in? Hmm. And he said, none. I said, well, whenever they talk about crime and violence in America, they always mention two places, Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn hmm. and Cabrini-Green in Chicago. And I grew up in Cabrini-Green. And I had one of the best childhoods imaginable in the history of the species. Tell me about it. Tell me why did you think it was one of the best childhoods? Because I had a lot of fun. I met some of the best friends you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did some very crazy things. I had a great mother. I mean, a great mother. And uh, so I just, had, I just had a wonderful childhood. And, you know, I think what we keep on coming back to, there's a, that phrase that I think a lot of people rebel against, but it's like, write what you know. And I think people are like, what do you mean, write what I know? Like, I'll write a movie about myself getting breakfast or you have to bring something unique to a story or it will feel cliche. I think every one of these uh, movies that we've done so far, the writer and the director and the stars are bringing a very unique take to it, right? It's not, you know, and and this is no slight on uh, John Hughes, who I love. And I think John Hughes can capture a teen voice in a really interesting way. But these are personal stories. These are like memoirs, for the most part, of these people. Or 
if it's not a memoir, it's sort of like what Rebel Without a Cause is, you know, where it's like sort of working through these issues that they're having, you know, and, and those kids were a little bit younger, so they're a little bit more in touch with, you know, the create from on being on the creator side of it and then also the acting side of it. But I, I think that that's what we're kind of coming back to more and more is like, write what you know really just means like use, you know, the characters and the experience to fill whatever you are writing, right? Like this is not purely autobiographical, but it has a lot of elements that are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get always wary about right, what, you know, becoming this truism because I, I don't want it to encourage young writers to be incurious. Right. You know, like, don't write what you know now, like go learn stuff too. And then you can write about that, like yeah. learn more to write about, um, travel, see things, explore, meet new people. Um, but yeah, like I even get the sense that I, I've, I've yet to figure out in any of the stuff I've read the true, 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 true story. But it does seem from things Eric has said at the time that when he was in high school, he had a friend who also died the way that we we see happen right. here. To, and he needed to get that out. You know, it was, a, it was a real story that happened to him and it really did affect his life. And after it happened, he actually didn't graduate school. He left and he went to the military. And then from the military, that's how he hitchhiked to Los Angeles, which when I read that, it made sense because when you have that last last shot of him, you know, he looks like Rambo. Doesn't he look like he is? He looks like Rambo at the beginning of Rambo where he's in kind of yeah, you're right. Vietnam clothes with with the duffel bag. You know, yeah. and Vietnam isn't really a specter in this movie, even though it's taking place in like 64. You know, it's not, it hasn't really exploded yet into their consciousness. Nobody's saying like, oh, I got to stay in school because I don't want to go to Vietnam. But that shot felt Vietnam to me. Absolutely. I mean, again, and running out you know it's like this idea too i mean but i like that look the way he looks the way that he i think that moment is him disconnecting from this life and we do uh i think the reason why people say american graffiti is because this movie ends the same way american graffiti ends with the the title screens and i think what is done so much more effectively here is the title screens feel earned and they feel really um like oh that's interesting i did want to know what happened to these characters but it's not like out of the blue. Um, but his movement out, like he's basically running out of his old life and running to a new life. And and for the most part, everybody else, you know, is doing that in a little bit, but not really. They're all kind of staying in there. So he kind of breaks, he breaks frame. I mean, he doesn't go to the, like, when he when he doesn't go to the funeral, he makes a choice to leave that old world behind. Such a conscious choice. And I think that that, that to me felt like the most autobiographical moment. Like I am leaving behind all the comfort and safety of my friends and family and everything that I know to see if I can go do it alone. And uh, yeah, there's something about that, you know, and, and the Rambo comparison is actually really great. I love that. Yeah. And you see that it will cost him because I, mm -hmm. there's this tiny shot in the middle of, of that funeral sequence where um, Michael Schultz cuts to Brenda's face mm -hmm. and you see Brenda and it's like, five seconds less than that thing. You just see Brenda kind of look around, notice he's not there silently. She doesn't say anything right. about it, but she registers that a guy that she trusted and was really maybe even starting to have feelings for didn't show up to his best friend's funeral. And you see that flicker of disappointment on her face. And it all just happens really quick, but you realize it's not just heroic that he's leaving. It's necessary, but it yeah. does, it does cost him. And then in the epilogue, you see that like Brenda does not go to Hollywood. Brenda gets married, becomes a librarian, has a bunch of kids, has a really steady life that does not involve him because of the choice he made. And I don't think that any of those choices that we see at the end of the film 
are saying that they are wrong or bad, right? They are probably typical. And he made the atypical choice. Most people don't move to Hollywood or New York. I think that like, for the most part, a lot of my friends that I had growing up, I think are probably in a 50 mile radius of where I grew up, you know, and I think that that's incredible, more than fine. But I think that story of going out is, you know, that, that I would love to have seen that sequel, you know, uh, and I wish there was like a preach sequel because that would have been really interesting to see that. I, you know, I think that we almost get a sequel of that in a way with Hollywood Shuffle, another movie we talked about a bunch here on the show. Robert Townsend in this movie, I dig. first of all, the ensemble cast, we talked about like the extras and, and the background people. But when you see, see people like Stephen Williams, who's on NTSF, he's the best. I love him for 21 Jump Street on X-Files. I love this man. He's such a great actor. He's amazing. This he plays like the the recently out of jail uh, friend of the family who does that like little con in the middle of the movie where he's like uh, helping that guy go up and have sex with that woman. Like you know, like it's such a another crazy moment. But um, but he's great. Garrett Morris is great. Um, I love for, Garrett Morris so much. Uh, Garrett, by the way, they didn't want to cast Garrett Morris because they said he looked too young to be a teacher, but he was actually a teacher. They had to really? be like, no, he actually is a teacher. Yeah. And they let him <laughs> do the, the film. And he's, you know, I, I think he's fantastic in the movie. Like, he's unbelievable in this movie. He is. Let's actually hear a clip of him talking. This is him trying to trying to connect to Preach. And what I like about this clip is he asks Preach the question. Preach gives him an answer that you can tell Preach thinks is big and dramatic and mm-hmm. cool and interesting. But Garrett, again, we get that register of disappointment. You know, this idea of like this, this cost you, this cost you my respect. You know, by the way, I didn't realize, I hadn't really done the math, that Garrett Morris only got SNL this year. I thought it was like we reach out to a guy that we adore from TV, we put him in right. the, or from this. But no, 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 like Garrett Morris was having his year as this movie was coming out. And I didn't know that Garrett Morris earlier in his career was part of the Belafonte, Belafonte folk singers. You know, oh, Harry know Belafonte's like yeah. singing backup brand. I bring this up only because I just watched a documentary on Harry Belafonte that I, I loved that just came out. I mean, it's done in like a kind of, blah, 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 talking head right. style, patting on the back. It's on Peacock. But it's about the week that Harry Belafonte hosted Johnny Carson. Oh, I just read about this. Yeah, okay. It's so interesting. Yeah, I, I'll just talk about it for two seconds. Apparently in 1968, Johnny Carson was trying to figure out how to register what to do with what was happening at the time. You know, mm-hmm. the convention. We even have in here, like the the convention in 1968, Tyrone, one of the characters here, is killed. And Johnny Carson is thinking to himself like, I'm a white guy with a show on nighttime TV. I have this audience. I don't know what to do with it. I don't. And so he kind of engineers this idea that he's going to take a week vacation and give the microphone to Harry Belafonte. And Harry Belafonte is like, I will do this if I have complete control over the guests. And so Belafonte uses this week when he's piped directly into television sets all across America using, you know, his kind of celebrity power to put Martin Luther King on air. It's like one of Martin Luther King's last big televised um, moments. Um, He brings in Bobby Kennedy. He brings in Aretha Franklin. Like he brings in this heavy hitter ensemble of like, you know, um, performers to put them into the houses. It's I don't know. It's just a really interesting documentary about how somebody uses their microphone. And how to be a good ally, including Paul Newman um, has a tiny cameo in there because Paul Newman had never done a talk show before in his life. And he said, I will do a talk show during Harry Harry Belafonte's week. I will do my very first talk show appearance to bring more publicity to it. It's very cool. And then, yeah, the tragedy is um, most of those uh, nights weren't recorded. Only two of the nights were ever recorded. Wait, So they lost three of those evenings to history. Wow. That 
So, oh, wow. I'm so bummed because I'd love to have seen that. Um, yeah, they only kept Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy and basically everybody else. They lost them. <laughs> and so wow. it's terrible. But I was just bringing it up because to see Harry Belafonte here and to think about the kind of movers and shakers changing and shaping culture. And I know that Garrett Morris was part of that before this film and before he was on SNL. Meant yeah. a lot to me to find that out this week. I hadn't known that. Well, I think, you know, it's interesting. We talked about this in the past as well. Like sometimes movies like this are put into a category. Like, you know, the term I read multiple times is like, this is the black American graffiti instead of, you know, American graffiti is like, that is a, a teen coming of age movie. Like that is, you know, we don't call like last picture show a white, you know, a white American graffiti, you know? Um, and it's interesting because this movie does do incredibly well, right? It, it's, you know, probably in most people's minds, it's a niche film, right? It's not going to have this big hit, but it does. It is a big hit. It comes out in this really weird way. Yeah, it makes like 15 times its money back. And yet it, it's Crazy. still like the next film by Schultz Car Wash that gets credited with being his real crossover success. But 15 times your money back, that is nothing. There's films right now that would kill to make $13 million. Yeah. And I just think it's interesting because I think that sometimes these movies can be removed uh, because they're not in the same conversation as uh, other teen films. It's like, well, this is a black teen film. Even some of the reviews I looked at were like, you don't even have to be black to enjoy it. And I, <laughs> which is, I mean, so crazy. That's but a it, poster it, tag. I know. It's wow. like, but it's like, but I think that that like it, it interestingly segregates movies sometimes because it's like, oh, is that for me? Is this for me? And, uh, and especially after doing the AFI list, I can't for the life of me figure out why this isn't there because of the cultural impact. You know, there's so many reasons why it should be on that list. And the fact that it was a hit, but this movie kind of has been a, uh, an underdog under the surface. Like when it had its, uh, 40th anniversary, which was a couple of years ago, I it felt like that's when people really, uh, were able to like hoisted up a little bit more. Like I've read so many articles around that time, around the anniversary of this film. Uh, and of course it's influenced people like John Singleton and Spike Lee. Spike Lee's put it on his list of like most important films to see. But I think as an independent filmmaker, this is a film you have to see. I mean, it, it just shows what you can do. I mean, there's car chases in here. There's, you know, there are, they're just living in the city. Like there's so much that you don't often see in an independent film. And I know it's not independent, independent, but it it definitely feels like that to me. I mean, the budget is, I mean, that's a low budget, that movie, for all the locations that they hit and all the things that they do. Yeah, no, I think you're really right. I think it, it takes a lot of the people who are influenced by this film to try to raise it up again, which is a little yeah. bit, it's, it's frustrating that we can't just do it immediately. Like George Lucas makes Star Wars and Michael Schultz makes a bunch of hits and yet doesn't exists in the same breath as as George Lucas. And it takes like, I mean, one of those people, as you mentioned, John Singleton was huge in saying like, this is my film. This is the film. This is the film. He told the story about going to the theater with his mom when he was maybe seven years old to see this movie. And when uh, Cochise dies, his mom burst into tears and he was like, why are you crying? And he thought to himself, whatever this is that this screen has, the power to make my mother cry, I want to learn how to do that to people. I want to learn how to have that emotional power. And, you know, my eyes are opening to a lot of things, obviously, culturally, and we're we're in a, a time, I think, where everyone is just taking a step back and, and kind of reassessing points of view. I'm just blown away that as an owner of the Belle Biv DeVoe album, Cooley High Harmony, and 
the song that is at the centerpiece, or not the centerpiece, but the climactic moment of the film. Like, I never even connected. I didn't know. I thought Cooley High Harmony was like where Belle Biv DeVoe went to school. Like, I didn't go down this rabbit hole. And when to hear that song in the movie, it just blew my mind. I was like, oh, how do I have such a cultural touchstone to that song and and Belle Biv DeVoe and not know where it came from? I mean, I know that, what about Breakfast at Tiffany's, that song that you played, or, or maybe we, we played it, um, you know. It, you don't you know, want to know how much I sing Breakfast at Tiffany's to my boyfriend. It's really but, awful. But I mean, like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's interesting how it can still be under the surface when something, like, that's a juggernaut. That that song was a juggernaut. That band was a juggernaut. But to be separate from it, I don't know. It's a, it's just, uh, maybe it's just me, but I. It is not uh, just you. Like, let's play that song. that either i didn't know that it, this is the boys to men version it was my very first slow dance like i've seen boys to men play in the last decade i've gone to a right. boys to men concert I, oh me too i didn't realize I went to that either Staples Center. and it's crazy like i mean there is this cross bleeding of people trying to raise up the profile of this film i mean erica badu is another one mm-hmm. there, there's the college in here that he wins the basketball scholarship to oh, yeah, grambling, grambling. you know yeah and grambling is where erica badu went i don't know if that's why she feels like a special like bond with this film right. that's one of the the many reasons um but erica badu who by the way i heard was like one of the queens of that school i think she was like kind of like a homecoming oh, queen. Wow. um she recently did an album that she did in an alter ego and the alter ego she picked is loretta brown and this is her explaining oh, wow. why she was loretta brown loretta brown came because i just wanted to separate that um energy of erica badu's frequency from from what i do when i'm spinning and the name Loretta Brown came from a, a movie called Coolie High. It was like a cult 70s film about coming of age uh, for young black kids in the high school. And it was really an amazing, touching story. It was what Boys in the Hood became for the black community in the 90s. Is there another one? Is there a new one? Loretta Brown was, okay, has anybody here seen Coolie High? Maybe a couple of people. Well, Loretta Brown was just a very insignificant character in the movie. She was, there was a house party and uh, her boyfriend came to the party late. His name was Cochise. And she was dancing with this other dude. No, it was the other way around. Cochise was there dancing with her. And she was dancing, and the other boyfriend came in and saw him and they had a big fight. But at the, when she was sitting on the couch when they first came in, he said, ooh, baby, what's your name? She was like, Loretta Brown. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I love that just that minor character had such an impact on her. 
I mean, I have to admit, when I was watching this movie, I was like, what is Loretta Brown's problem? Like, Loretta Brown's really weird, right? Am I... Am I alone on this? Like Loretta Brown, she seems like she's piped in from another planet. She's she's very spacey to me. I think we, we usually yeah. ask, like, what do the aliens think? I feel like Loretta Brown is talking to the aliens already <laughs> in this movie. But that's what I think is so interesting about this film is, like, the performances are very naturalistic. So you're getting, like, everyone feels incredibly different. So it's like she's just another shade of, you know, another shade that we have in this film. Uh, because yeah, they're like you can't quite put them together. I mean, there's there's something fun about this movie that even reminded me of House Party. Like that sequence, that whole sequence felt very much like House Party. And I know it's like a party in a house, but also like the friends looking yeah, to go like, out. Yeah, like don't have break fun. my thing. Be careful. It's, it's yeah. the don't kick my speakers. It's the same. Yeah, or the don't hurt my, turn, my turntable. And I I bet you there's influence there. I'm sure you know Reggie Hudlin. Uh, you know who we talked to on our House Party episode. Like you know he's coming up at the right age for this movie to hit at the same time. Like, and I think he did a really, a similar thing, just captured this coming of age, having fun. You know, it's a fun movie. It is a, it's a legitimately fun movie. And, and I feel like, you know, where we talked about in 400 Blows, where the adults don't care about the kids. I think here we see the most parental caring that we have seen since um, Lindsay Lohan's parents in Mean Girls. Like that's the only really solid parental relationships we've seen in this film. Like, you know, I, I feel like here, you know, uh, Kochi's mom, like really cares about him when she comes home from that double shift and is just like, boom, just, just hammering him. Like, but it's all out of love. And I feel like there is, you, you see the teachers care about the students, like Garrett Morris, like the way he plays that first scene where he's stopping every kid, he knows what's going on. He goes to the police. He's trying to help out all the kids. Like here's a world in which adults are giving a shit about the kids in their world. And, you know, and I think that, you know, statistically, culturally, that is true, right? Um, and it's just an interesting perspective to see that in in this film, uh, which uh, I feel like has been something that has been lacking in others. Yeah, I want to actually play that mom clip because it really popped out to me as such a moment of tenderness in the middle of this movie. And it, it it that is actually the scene that made me think of House Party. In addition to like the don't break my cabinet, yeah. whatever. The, I don't know what you call that type of furniture. I just I get that type of furniture freaks me out because I'm like it's oh, just there to get dusty and to have yeah. things. Like yeah. that's that's like that's I don't, don't need have to display plates. No, uh, yeah, I no, don't need. To do I don't that. believe in display furniture. Thank, I'm glad we agree on this. Like I want to yes. burn down display furniture. It freaks yes, me out. Absolutely. Um, Unless I can put my Funkos in there. Yeah, Funkos. Get my Funkos <laughs> on display, Amy. Oh my god. I was about to go on a tangent. I won't. I, I, I will stop. But yeah, let's listen to the mom's sleeping sound because that's the scene, the scene that really reminded me of House Party. It reminded me of his relationship with, of kids' um, relationship with his uh, dad, Robin Harris. Hi, mama. Don't hide, mama me. What you doing riding around in stolen cars? Uh, mama, that wasn't me. They got the wrong somebody. Don't lie to me. I swear, mama, they made a mistake. It was somebody that looked like me. Shut up. I don't want to hear what is this D saying you upstairs in the bed with naked girls? Oh. oh. And now you've gone and got yourself arrested. You know I got three jobs and I've got to trust somebody. Mommy, you know you can trust me. Go upstairs and get that belt. Get my belt? Go upstairs and get that belt. Oh, mama. I'm tired. I ain't doing it no more. I'm tired. Thank <laughs> you. 
I've been thinking. Maybe I ought to leave. I mean, I'm almost 18 years old now. And... I mean, am I, I'm not crazy. I think there's even a scene in House Party where he does the same thing. He talks in his dad when he realizes yep. his dad Absolutely. has passed out of sleep. It, I, I feel like that's the shared moment, like a shared universe. By the way, the bullies in House Party, there's similarities in the bullies, mm-hmm. you know, they, that are chasing a kid the entire time. Like, you know, we they're not chasing them the entire time, but that there is that same sort of thing. And I think the death at the end of this film um, is interesting, right? Because a lesser movie would probably make it more dramatic, right? He's going to get shot, killed. I think, and I say that, and now I'm going to say something else in the same breath. Boys in the Hood does that kind of an ending, right? But Boys in the Hood is a much more heightened drama. I think that's much more earned. Here, what I think they do kind of beautifully, back to my point from the beginning, is it's accidental. They don't mean to kill this guy. They're not trying to kill this guy. This was a wrong hit. His head hit the thing. And, you know, arguably he broke his neck, right? Um, To me, that is as much of the youthful indiscretion as robbing the prostitutes, stealing the car, stealing the things. It's like, you don't think of consequences when you're doing this stuff. You're just a kid. You don't realize that there is danger, right? And then it takes something to happen. I remember I was doing something with my friend and he's like, I want to ride on the back hood of your car, you know, the trunk of your car. I was like, yeah, yeah, great. And we drove and he flipped off the car and he busted open his hand. It was in the hospital. I had to get physical therapy for years because his, his wrist was all messed up. You know, it's, this idea of like where you're pushing these limits and what I kind of find so amazing about that moment is his death isn't violent. It's just normal, but something unexpected happens, right? They do get busted for the car. They do, you know, the fight turns weird, but, and you can see the innocence in them when they do it. They weren't out for doing it. So anyway, I just thought that that was thematically throughout this whole film, just doing kid stuff but as you transition out of being a kid the consequences of adult life comes in and i think that that's really what the movie you know turns over we're watching them run around having fun doing all this sort of stuff and now the the end shot is rambo you know we're watching an adult go into the world i don't know no, that's you're right there's like that liminal state like this is the last moment where they can be considered kids yeah you know like as soon as they graduate they're men, yeah. you know, they're with, with yeah. all of sort of the consequences yeah, of the law, really... which I think is something we're still sort of fighting over, you know, like prosecuting people at different ages. And when do you decide somebody is an, is an adult? And I, I appreciate that we do get that moment from Michael Schultz where you see the people who kill Cochise. Cochise feels like a character who seems immortal through most of the movie. He oh, walks yeah, with that kind of like young God exuberance. He is the center of everybody. He like is, He is yeah. the coolest guy in that school. He's got a scholarship. He's, you know, ladies love him. It's great. It's, yeah, it's an amazing, yeah, he really is the all-star. He really is. And I think he plays that character with such radiance, Lawrence Hilden Jacobs does, that I think it makes, you know, the fact that we give the story back to Preach at the end and Preach has that last poem and Mm -hmm. Preach is the one who carries forth with this story and tells his story in Hollywood and does the thing. Like, he actually does the thing as Preach and as Eric Monte. I think that's what makes this poem so beautiful. I wrote a poem for you. Nigga, I know you don't like poetry, but I'm going to read it to you anyway. I ain't never read my poetry for nobody, not even my mama. See a damn thing. 
it goes. We were friends a long time ago, laughing, rapping, chasing girls, obeying no laws except the one of caring. Basketball days and high nights, no tomorrows, unable to remember yesterday. We live for today. You could have been the greatest, man. You know, Amy, I know we're getting close to wrapping up. I just want to bring up one sequence and get your take on it. When they do go to the movies to see Godzilla and Mothra, how wonderfully is this movie edited? Because they do something <laughs> with like the kids making out and the sounds of them making out and the and like the they parallel the make out with Godzilla in it's really a beautifully directed scene. And it kind of took me by surprise. The movie is really well done, of course, but that scene really felt artistic to me. It really just jumped out. It's like, wow, what a great way. And then you're also having all this comedy of, you know, the one kid is not there with the girl getting popcorn, getting kicked out, getting into fights, but just kind of playing with sound. And I don't know if your copy was like this, but I saw mine on Amazon Prime and the sound is a little wonky in parts of this movie. And I think that that's as cleaned up as they're going to get it. But, uh, but that sequence the, uh, <laughs> of kind of matching Godzilla and Mothra and making out and, and the hands going up and being let in and not let in. Oh, I loved it. I love that you, that you brought that up. I was going to bring that up too. Cause that scene really cracks me up. Let's play a little bit of those sound effects. Quick over there. Oh, I love that. So I mean, I, yeah, just like the layered of that. Like, oh no, we're going all the way. Hit it up. It's so fun. And I it's, love they're watching Godzilla. It's so great. And, you know, it's, you know, <laughs> I just, and it's packed. Godzilla is packed. Yeah. And I think they are having fun with the sound the whole way through and also the soundtrack. I mean, that when mm. Preach is playing and gambling at the, at the, at the diner and then his shoes hit Brenda and we get to see Brenda for the first time. And the song that kicks in is like, stop in the name yeah. of love. This soundtrack is just ridiculous. I mean, I heard that part of the reason that it yeah. is wall to wall bangers the way that it is, is because when it came out in 75, this era of Motown wasn't considered as mega as it is now. Wow. They, they, they were able to get these songs for cheaper than they would be today. You know, they're like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Those songs are great. Sure, have them, have them for pennies. And so a low budget film was able to afford the greatest soundtrack of all time. Well, and you know what gets me is how great would it be to see this movie in the theater, hearing these songs for the first time? Because now this is part of the language of film. Like mm -hmm. the, all these songs we've heard a million times. And yeah, these They're songs all have cheating. all passed over into Burger King commercial songs. Do you know what oh, I mean? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Stop. It's... Don't you want more cheese or whatever? Ha, 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 ha. 
we have an incredibly special guest joining us uh, to talk about Cooley High this week. I am so excited to bring in Glenn Turman, who plays Preach in the film. Glenn is just one of, I think, our great, great working actors. I mean, he played the mayor, Clarence Royce, on The Wire. He was in A Different World. He has been in everything. He won the Emmy recently for In Treatment. He's going to be in the upcoming uh, season of Fargo, and he's going to be in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which I think is going to be one of the bigger films of this year when it comes out uh, later on in Netflix. Everybody, welcome Glenn Turner. All right, well, Glenn, so take me back. I mean, I want to actually jump back before Cooley High. I want to jump back to when you're 12 years old and you're starting your career by acting against Sidney Poitier and Ruby Dee on Broadway, you know, in the in the premiere of Raisin in the Sun. And I'm wondering, when you were 12 years old, did, you knew this was a pretty big deal, right? Yeah, I, I, I figured it out eventually. I, I, I didn't, when I was initially informed of it and informed that I'd gotten a role and all that, I didn't think it was a big deal. But uh, as as time went on and I saw all the hoobla, 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 I said, this is a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> was acting your thing when you were 12? No, not at all. I, 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 I thought it would be over the following weekend so that I could get back to playing baseball, you know? <laughs> well, then, so how do you wind up in Cooley High? I mean, were you chasing this part or were they chasing you? Actually. Um, Michael Schultz and I had done a play at the Mark Taper Forum. And um, when he and Eric Monte were putting together the uh, Cooley High, he brought me on board. He said, I've got the guy for, for this kid, um, uh, Preach. They took it to the big shots at the AFI who gave them the okay. And there I was uh, headlining this motion picture. Now, to get Eric Monte's uh, like sign-off, I imagine that's huge, you know, since this is the character that was the closest to him in terms of the characters he wrote. I mean, did he talk to you about his personal connection to that character? Oh, yeah, for sure. We talked We talked and worked on it together, a lot of it together, you know. Eric and I had built a relationship. It worked out wonderfully. Were you able to find little bits that you were able to bring to the role? Your own? Your own? Ideas? Oh, oh, for sure, sure. You know, that's what actors do. You know, you you try to see what what uh, resonates with you, what what similar experiences you've had. You know, when I grew up in New York City, you know, I'm a I'm a I'm a Manhattan kid. You know, I grew up all over Manhattan. Originally from Harlem, I had an aunt that I spent a lot of time with in the projects down on the Lower East Side. So so much of that was you know ditching school and playing hooky and cutting class and all that and riding on the back of buses. But that was a big thing back in New York when I was a kid, you know, back of trucks, back of anything moving, you know, if you could hitch a ride on anything moving, it'd be waiting for the subway. And uh, so. <laughs> Isn't that scary? It looked so scary to me. Yeah, that, that's that's what made it fun because it was scary. <laughs> <laughs> that was my lifestyle, you know, and so I was able to connect to that right away because that's exactly what me and my partners, that's how we grew up in New York. Well, then talk to me about shooting this in Chicago. I mean, it, it, it has such a kind of run and gun energy, but then there's huge set pieces. I mean, I can't imagine what shooting that car chase was like. Well, it was, it was, it was the run and gun was all Michael Schultz. Michael Schultz had us running from the time the camera 
he, by the time he called action, we were not allowed to walk anywhere. You know, I couldn't believe the pace that he set for that motion picture. And uh, so, uh, you know, and and the night that we did the the car ch- the car chase when we st- stole a car and the p- police were chasing us, that would have to have been one of the coldest nights in uh, in Chicago ever recorded in history. And uh, so we were freezing, waiting to get that shot that night. And um, uh, you know, it was just, it was. But it was a wonderful, wonderful evening, you know. And and what 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 is one of one of the things about that night that I remember particularly was, and you can see it on on the film, you know. I I had, you know, as a young actor trying to make a living uh, to support a young family that I had. I had had a job as a truck driver in New York, so I was pretty efficient as a driver. I'd had I'd had my driver's license ever since I was 17, you know, and so I was, you know, handling heavy-duty trucks through Manhattan traffic uh, from an early uh, age, hustling to try and keep a keep a family fed and a roof over our head. So when we got to the the uh, car chase. The guys, you know, Larry, Lawrence and Jacobs and, and Stone and, Ro- and Robert, Rick, they didn't really know that I was really a, a good driver. So I put the <laughs> pedal to the metal going through some of that stuff and <laughs> and, scared, and literally scared the hell out of them <laughs> going through some of those tunnels and some of those narrow spots. And you can hear one of, one of the things that tickles the hell out of me is you can hear Rick, if you listen, you can hear Rick, uh, who's played Stone, I believe. You can hear him say, "Okay, Glenn, okay, <laughs> <laughs> slow down, Glenn, slow down." <laughs> well, you got the method screaming. <laughs> yeah, I had the method screaming, but he says my name, Glenn, and he doesn't call me preach. <laughs> And he's pulling the hat down over his head, and his eyes are bugging out, and he's scared to death. And I crack up every time I see that scene because, and, and Larry, Larry's laughing so loud, uh, so bad that he has to hide behind the daggone uh, uh, chair because <laughs> he can't, he can't control himself because he's he's cracking up. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! It was so funny. It was so <laughs> funny. Yeah, we, we we had such a great time that night. <laughs> well, even thinking about that car, I mean, there's you and Lawrence who have you know a real history of being trained actors, and then there's two guys who were cast kind of from the street, you know, and that seems oh, like you went through the whole yeah. cast. You know, I'd known Garrett for a long time, but you're working with a lot of yeah. people who are green. How did that? How did that work? Oh, it worked wonderfully, you know. Um, um, Michael and, and Steve Kratz had gone through the neighborhood of Cabrini Green, which is no longer there, you know. And uh, I just, I was just there in Cabrini, in Chicago, filming uh, uh, Fargo, as a matter of fact, with Chris Rock that airs on the 27th. This is a little plug I'm going to give you. Oh, squeeze it in, yeah. Uh, but some of those spots are not there any longer, you know, but some of the people are still there, you know, uh, on the fringes, so to speak, because the, the the project building has been torn down 
and have made way for new high rises. And uh, but uh, they had a wonderful instinct to cast people from the neighborhood in key roles who did wonderful jobs, you know. Uh, um, and so uh, that was a great, it was, it was great fun working with those guys and girls because they were so, so uh, uh, excited about being a part of a motion picture and gave it their all, you know. And we worked through some late, late hours, you know, as you do with especially low budget films, you know, you've got to get as much as you can crammed into such a short time. But they were all troopers. They were all, you know, baptized by fire. I mean, is is this one of those kind of roles where people just want to come up to you on the street and talk about it? Because it feels like this just lives on and on and on. Like it's been through generations oh. now of people holding up this film oh, yeah. as a favorite. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm, pre- I'm preached forever, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> all across the country, all, all, across the, all across the world. I've been to Africa. And people have called me, you know, recognized me as, as preach from Cooley High and, uh, and and want to talk about Cooley High and who wear the Big Apple hats. You know, those hats are called the uh, Big Apples. And uh, that's a big style in, in, in um, Ghana and Nigeria. That was a big style a few years ago when I was back there. I was so surprised, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and the fans of, of Cooley High include Ingmar Bergman. I mean, I heard that Cooley High got you cast in an Ingmar Bergman film? I got a call from an unlikely source, my business manager, as opposed to my agent, who said, Ingmar Bergman is looking for you. And I was struggling at this time. I was really, really uh, having kind of rough uh, period. And he said, Ingmar Bergman was looking. I thought he was a, making a cruel joke, so I hung up on him, you know? <laughs> and <laughs> so... <laughs> so he called me right back. He said, Glenn, don't hang up. Don't hang up. I said, well, what the hell is that? I said, what the hell what kind of is that? You know, why, why would you say such a thing? He said, no, Ingmar Bergman, man. Ingmar Bergman, he wants you to end his film, a film he's doing, and he's looking for you. And uh, sure enough, Ingmar Bergman was casting me in a motion picture that he was doing with uh, David Carradine and, and Elliot Gould. I was off to Munich, Germany in the dead of winter to films the uh, the classic one of his one of his last films but when i got to my said when i got there i said how where did you how did you pick me you know and he said uh it's, uh, it's coolie high i saw the film called the coolie high that you were in i love this film coolie high that's my swedish impression and uh i was just amazed you know I mean, later on, when you become a director, I'm curious, like, were there things that you picked up? I mean, honestly, both from Bergman and from Michael Schultz here working on this film as like good ways to handle a set? Well, the thing I picked up from Bergman was how flexible he was. I was the first black actor to work with him. And though he had written a part for a black performer in in, in it, he, he had some misconceptions, and I expressed my concerns about the, the 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 portrayal of the character. And he was so uh, congenial and so um, uh, uh, caring in his way that he took my concerns into immediate action, 
and and said we will do this a different way tomorrow and he shut down the set wow. he said okay that's it we'll be back tomorrow and he came back the next day with a whole different concept of how that scene should go i could not believe it that would never happen in america <laughs> of course michael is and i you know we've done stage together we've done uh, uh plays and television He's just—he's just one of the most uh, generous directors, you know, that I've, I've worked with. You know, uh, a great—a great sense of storytelling, you know, and um, and and how he uses music and all of the different things uh, that afforded him. These guys are, are just fantastic directors. So I learned quite a, quite a bit from these guys as I moved on into the directing arena. I love that. And, you know, you have an upcoming project that I think is so beautiful in that it lets you combine your theater side and your film side in just such an epic production and getting and, and getting to do the Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which I think we're going to get to see later this year on Netflix. And right, you know, I'm right. curious, like, I've been lucky enough to see the play out here in my life as a theater critic in Los Angeles, but could you whet our appetites for this production that we're going to get to see? Well, I'm going to start by saying if you don't see it, you will have missed one of the most iconic uh, presentations of, of the 21st century. This, this, I, I must say that it, it is just mesmerizing. Denzel Washington kept totally behind the camera so that he is not in, in the, the film as a performer. He's not directing it. Uh, he's solely producing it. And by taking the, the helm, he has put together some of the finest talent that you will ever want to see uh, on screen. Uh, George Wolf, a Broadway theatrical juggernaut. You know, he's he's just he's just amazing. Set the pace for a wonderful, wonderful production with ideas coming out of left field that make you go, "What? What made you think of that? How do you?" Where is your mind, George, that you could even think to do such a thing? (laughs) (laughs) How how did you come up with something like that? You know, uh, I found myself asking him that often. You know, Viola Davis just disappears into Ma Rainey. So so her her portrayal of Ma Rainey is is probably going to be the definitive uh, portrayal. After all of the, the, the great portrayals that have been uh, presented, you know, I, I, I don't feel I don't feel uncomfortable saying that her portrayal will be probably the definitive one at all, you know. And of course, you know, it's just my heart is still bleeding as a result of the, the passing of Chadwick Boseman, who uh, turns in a, a levy that, uh, you know, people would be talking about for eons, especially bow out of, you know, this sphere with with such an iconic performance. It's just uh, fitting of the young giant that this young man was, you know. It, it, it saddens me, but it, I'm glad in my heart that I had the opportunity to work with him on this, his final production. 
in such a master uh, production of of the great play by August Wilson, you know. And then there's the rest of us, you know, who do our best. Well, they do great. I just do my best to keep up with the rest of them who are, you know, just unbelievable, you know. Well, Glenn, this has been such a treat. This has been really fantastic to get to talk to you about this part in Kuliai. And I would be remiss if, as we left, I didn't ask you about a rumor I heard that connects to one of our films on the previous 100 list that we just wrapped up, which is I heard that you auditioned for the part of Han Solo. Yes, 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 yes. That's that's a little bit of um, Hollywood folklore that has emerged over the years. And uh, yes, I did, and was uh, from what I I found out later was considered for the role by Mr. Lucas, uh, and I I finally had a chance to verify that with him at, at Sam Jackson's uh, birthday party about two years ago. Uh, I was able to cross over to George Lucas, who was attending. He and his lovely wife and you know we, I introduced myself and said you've got to put this to rest for me was I that close to getting that part and he said yes Terman you were you really were and I said you mean do you mean to tell me that uh, Harrison Ford has my career <laughs> <laughs> Wait until I see Ford, you know. <laughs> he owes <laughs> he owes me a few bucks at least, you know. <laughs> I love that. Well, I'm going to imagine that version in my head because I can see it. I could definitely see it. A little bit of that preach right. energy, a little bit of yeah. everything else I've seen you do. <laughs> okay. <right. laughs> well, Glenn, this has been such a treat. Thank you again for joining us on this episode. All right. Thank you. Well, Amy, I mean, we've talked about this movie and, and the cultural effect it made. We talked about how it has influenced so many people and what a big hit it was. But was it beloved when it came out? I mean, were there any bad reviews? There were a lot of bad reviews. Really? There really? were. There were. There were. Um, I picked one from the Dayton uh, Daily News. If you dig a combination of outhouse humor, syrupy melodrama, telegraphed plotline and characters without characterization, Coolie High is for you. He says Variety magazine summed up this type of movie several years ago as black exploitation, a film which doesn't merely ca- cater to black audiences but panders. Kulihai wow. is a sophomoric attempt to quote tell it like it is in other cinema verite hogwash. This film is playing drive-ins, and there's a reason. It's a bummer and not worthy of a first-run indoor playdate. About the only thing going for the flick is some excellent cinematography, most of it located in Chicago's South Side, but I didn't pay for an urban travelogue. And then this reviewer says only, quote unquote, highfalutin film critics compare it favorably to American Graffiti. I found it to be an utter waste of time and money, even at the low $1.50 drive in price. And that is the the Dayton Daily News. And if you're asking if that is not written uh, by a person of color, you would be correct. Yeah. Wow. That's really I mean, look, of course, of course, um, you know, this movie is not a typical film in the sense that the plot is a little bit loose. I think it is true that this movie feels like uh, stories that are sewn together. You know, it's it's very much like a art film. You know, it like 
it's not like, oh, I don't know what the plot of this movie is really until the police get there to kind of arrest. And that's, and that's really in the last 25 minutes of the film, you know, which is kind of great because I don't care. I'm just enjoying it. And I think that that goes to show you, if you create interesting characters, you're just along for these stories and these moments, but there's no, there's no like uh sort of Damocles like hanging over their heads until that moment. Yeah, and there's in, no like and, we have to, you know, get the money back to pay for yeah. the car that we totaled or something like that. And what's the big show? And there's no even has yeah. to pajama jammy jam. I, I think you could I could see how if you were not enjoying these characters, you could be like, I'm out. I also can see how in the first 10 minutes, you're like, what am I watching? Like, because it is so loose it's like we're it's silent to a certain degree you know the the faking the nosebleed the running out the jumping on the bus the going to the park seeing the animals it's like it's like what am i what is this what am i watching like it it doesn't feel like it it starts but then what i think is so clever about this movie is that boom it just grabs you like oh now i'm in i'm fully here i want to know everything about these people yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I can imagine that the Gorilla Poop turned off some people. The Gorilla Poop, by the way, was made of a mix of chocolate and peanut butter, if you were at all revolted Ooh, by the Gorilla I know, poop. I made it last night. I, that's what was, that was my snack with it. Um, oh, really? No. <laughs> well, you know, I don't usually read a good review on this show, mm. but I read a good review as I was looking for reviews of this, and it was so good that I wanted this film to be able to have Ooh, it. Oh, I love it. it. All right, great. Um, this is a review from uh, Jack Slater from the New York Times, who was a black film critic, and he had a really personal take on it that I found quite striking. So forgive me, this is long, but Jack Slater wrote such a great review. I wanted to read it. My Cooley High was Dunbar High School of the 1950s in Dayton, Ohio. I, actually, I just realized it's interesting. They're both from Dayton, him and the guy who panned it. Yeah. Um, but Jack says, you know, later through the prism of civil rights, I would view Dunbar without generosity, as though it had only been a segregated school or a sociological experience. But Cooley High remembers more honestly and more clearly than I what it was really like when we were young enough to see ourselves without sociology's help, without cliches, when our identity was largely a mix of self-discovery, friendship, and what we hoped to be. Jack says, Cooley High documents perhaps that last moment in modern American history, 1964, when it was possible for young Blacks to see their color simply as one of the components of their personalities pointing out that this does take place before the civil rights movement, which he says, you know, sweeping across the South in 1964, it seems to have had little, if any, effect on the Northern teenagers portrayed in the film. And as Jack continues, he says, you know, to be Black and to watch Cooley High is to see one's vanished innocence and beauty. Oh, wow. Because it takes a backward glance, the movie is now being called a, quote, Black American graffiti. But it has, in my view, far more vitality and variety than graffiti, which profiled bored, despairing youth in small-town America of the early 1960s. No one in Cooley High is bored. Like the earlier film, however, Cooley High does remind us almost incidentally of who we once were. It reminds those of us who grew up Black during the 50s and early 60s of the sense of self we managed to achieve during those years. It wasn't only white America which forced us into caricature. You know, when I was growing up at Dunbar High School, I remember I used to read the poetry of Elizabeth Barrett Browning over with the same passion as one of the teenagers in Cooley High. I also read Emily Bronte over and over, like scores of other dreamy black youngsters. And by the late 60s, however, with black nationalism rising in self-defense against the white nationalism, which had always been present, no black high school student would have been caught dead with a white woman's lovesick poetry or prose in tow. Cooley High then returns to us that lost part of ourselves, which once lost its way. And it returns me, at least, to the time when at my Dunbar, it was possible to embrace Emily Bronte because she was just, quote, real neat. 
it seems to me that Cooley High implicitly urges all of us to choose among the myriad of ways which illuminate all lives, white as well as black, to choose and then discard them when they are no longer needed, if only to remain human and growing in a world which pushes us every day toward cliche. Wow, I love that review. What a it, great uh, way to end this show. But we haven't asked the big question. What do you think the aliens would think about this film, Amy? What do you think? You know, I think they would uh, at least like it better than American Graffiti, to be honest. I really can't yeah. see a reason why we wouldn't have this instead of American Graffiti on a list at all. Like, I, I, I think this movie has such a youthful, fun energy. I think it has one of the greatest soundtracks of all time. I think that our two leading performances are so fun in this. Like, I, as much as I groaned at some of the things that Kushis did, like, he's just great. He kind of has that way of walking through this film. It made me think of um, Chadwick Boseman in The Five Bloods. You know, he plays mm. that kind of character who's just larger and more charismatic than anybody you ever know in real life. Right. You know, I like him a lot more than I like Richard Dreyfuss in American Graffiti. I'll say that. <laughs> I don't really want to hang out with those people in American no, Graffiti that much. I neither do I. I, you know, I think that this movie shows something that we haven't seen. And I think for that, I get so excited. The same way I felt about 400 Blows and Stand and Deliver. It's just like, oh, it just opens up a, it just shows us yet another type of high school experience. And I think that, you know, high school has been done so many times and, you know, for the most part, you could probably put all of the high schools that you ever have seen in TV into the same school, right? Like there is like, there's a similarity of like the high school in Scream and the high school in Mean Girls and the high school, you know, in 16 Candles. Are they that much different? Like, no, they're not like wildly different. And so to see something so uniquely told in a place and at a time you know again talking about this is like one of the first films in chicago that's taking advantage of showing chicago the l train and and all all that chicago is amazing for i do give props to uniqueness and i do believe that sometimes these films get forgotten you know they get forgotten on the side because they weren't directed by george lucas and Michael Schultz, you know, if he had Car Wash on the uh, AFI Top 100, I'd say, well, okay, well, he's already represented, although I wouldn't put Car Wash above this. There's something about the refreshingness of trying something different and seeing a different type of high school or a different type of experience that just, to me, made this feel like the first time I'm watching a high school movie in many ways. Like, And that's not to say the film is perfect, and that's not to say that everything is amazing, but that variety is so much more fun, you know, when you, when we've been watching so many things that are cut from the same cloth and especially on a list like the AFI, where it feels like all their coming of age stories are very much cut from the same cloth. Very much, very much. So, I mean, yes. So, I mean, look, I think aliens would definitely enjoy it. I think the xenomorph would love it. I think Mac and me would be uh, into <laughs> it. Um, but we will see. Uh, yeah. I really, really loved, uh, watching this movie and getting a chance to kind of dive into it with you. Now, Amy, are you ready for our final pick of our back to school uh, miniseries? Because then we're going to throw it over to our audience. You listeners are picking our final movie of the miniseries, but this is our final pick coming up next week. We are going to do Fast Times at Ridgemont High, a classic 
Uh, Amy Heckerling will be a guest on the show. But if you've never seen Fast Times, which you must remedy immediately, you can take a listen to this trailer. Universal Pictures presents everything you always wanted to do in high school with everyone you always wanted to do it with. Hey, bud. Let's party. They're the students of Ridgemont High. <laughs> Brad Hamilton, the fast food king. I shall serve no fries for their time. It says 100% guaranteed, you moron. Mister, if you don't shut up, I'm going to kick 100% of your ass. Charles Jefferson, <laughs> a man with a mission. Oh, gnarly. Linda Barrett, not exactly the girl next door. Awesome. Totally awesome. And Jeff surfs up Spicoli. People on moods should not drive. All right, Fast Times at Ridgemont High is available wherever you stream your films. It's easy to find. Uh, Amy, any uh, final thoughts? No final thoughts, but we did begin this show with a toast, and I would like to have just one more toast. I'm really glad we got to do this movie on the show. Yeah, it's really fun to kind of find, for me, the last three films have been amazing. What an amazing journey so far. Like, I didn't Uh see Rebel and 400 Blows and this, and now I feel like, I see coming of age films in such a different way. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, it, it, it makes me excited about watching uh, films and finding more variations on the theme exactly. instead of the same and variation. Just, like, all again, those again. connections between those three in particular has just been yeah. wonderful. Loved it. Um, all right. Well, we'll see you next week. 